My name is Rachel Gerarier. I am currently a postdoctoral fellow at the Berman Institute of Bioethics at Johns Hopkins University with a focus in ethics and infectious disease. And I am jointly appointed at the Welcome Center for Ethics and Humanities at the University of Oxford. And my background is in public and global health. I was trained in health systems management for my PhD, which I completed in Israel, where I focused on why healthcare workers do or do not get vaccinated. And interestingly enough, I conducted this research between 2016 and 2019 when COVID didn't exist. And vaccine mandates and vaccine policy, particularly among healthcare workers, which was a nice niche area within public health, but by no means like the storm of a topic that it is today, where everyone has an opinion on it and it's constantly in the news. I mean, it was just a complete shift for me to have that as my expertise and now have it be completely mainstream. So this is something I grapple with a lot now, continuing my research and will impact a lot of the statements I make today, probably on the podcast that maybe are a little different than what a lot of people in mainstream public health say frequently, at least in America. You guys can correct me if it's the same in Australia. On a personal note, I'm from Phoenix, Arizona. I went to Arizona State University and I love deserts and I love hiking and nature and happy to be here. All right. I'm actually curious because you've written about it in one of the articles, but how did you end up in Israel? So I ended up in Israel because I was a Fulbright scholar, which is... Which is like the smartest people on earth. You and I don't know about it. We haven't even heard about it. And I love that it's called Bright. Yeah, it's not... can't be like full dim scholar. Dim scholar (laughs) is for dim people. Yeah, it was actually the senator's last name, but it works out well. It works out really well. Yeah. During my master's research at Arizona State, I focused on mandatory influenza vaccination of healthcare workers. And at the time... It was when the Ebola outbreak in Africa was dominating like all of the head- headlines in public health, also in the U.S. And so together with my mentor at ASU, she was like, if you're interested in taking this topic and studying it in the global context, now would be the time. Because like now, it, it was sort of more popular topic than normal in 2013, 2014, nowhere near what it is today in 21 with COVID. And so I'd always wanted to live abroad. I mean, I grew up in the same place my whole life. I went to high school eight miles away from where I went to college, grew up on the same street. And I chose the country of where I wanted to go, Israel, because my father is Israeli. And this is not a very, you know, academic answer, but I just knew that if I didn't do my research in Israel, I was never going to go to Israel At the time, I wasn't the kind of person who was going to travel if there wasn't a reason because I am a nerd. And so I figured like, if I want to meet my family, I might as well combine it with my research. And thankfully, Israel was the perfect place to sort of sell the U.S. government on because Israel achieves really, really high vaccination uptake rates with different approaches in the U.S. So that's how I sold the U.S. government to pay me to go there. I was supposed to come back after a year. And then I realized just like this breadth of opportunity to continue my research there. And so I continued on for my PhD there afterwards in the same university I did the Fulbright. But this was completely unplanned. I just sort of went with it. So yeah. how long were you there for? I was there from 2015 until a few months ago. So a little over six years. Wow. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I was like there for the outbreak of COVID. And I experienced like all the four lockdowns with Israelis. And um, I left, you know, at the end of the summer. So I'm pretty key, keyed into the COVID outbreak developments in Israel more than I am in the States. Of course, now I'm less connected, but 
it was a crazy experience. Also crazy experience to have the whole world all of a sudden like looking at Israel for for like epidemiological reasons. Once again, obviously the world looks at Israel usually for political reasons. So it was just fascinating to be there. I guess if we want to get in, into it in terms of, you know, what Israel did, how about you talk us through that first and then we'll get into how we've yeah. done it <laughs> and how the US have been doing it. In terms of what yeah. fascinated you about the health system there, because for the listeners, Israel is the most vaccinated country in the world. I don't think now that it is anymore. Yeah, actually, but, but but for a long time it was, wasn't yes, it? absolutely. In yes. terms of just COVID or everything you mean? Specifically for COVID because for a long period of time we were practically the only only country with access to vaccines. Yeah. Uh, I think for a month. I mean, healthcare workers in, dev- in high-income countries had access to vaccines, but yeah. on a population level, you know, Israel was the first one to sort of experience vaccinated life. What vaccine did they have? Or what Only Pfizer. Okay. Yeah, solely Pfizer, which is another set of ethical issues. But Israel signed a complete like commitment contract to Pfizer, and that's a large reason why Pfizer chose Israel as one of the large reasons, one of the first countries, you know, to be have access because Israel's healthcare system is very centralized, and their electronic medical records are probably the most developed in the world in the sense that I have an app on my phone sign in and all of my health care is there all of my records from the day i moved to israel is there and until the day i die so if people are born and die in israel you get a complete medical record completely electronic which allows for a lot of analyses that you can't complete even in countries like the u.s where the healthcare system is so fragmented my both my parents are gps so they're doctors mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you must have figured it out from GPs. So I work at a clinic. It's it's such a hassle, like healthcare records. The clinic that I work for, if we want to get medical health records from another clinic, the patient has to essentially sign a form giving us consent. Then we send it through. And then it actually comes up in an XML format, which is kind of like HTML, which then gets read by the software. But you need to have that software on your computer to actually mm-hmm. read that data and then it turns it into something else. But say we we have we have a centralized medical system as well because we've got kind of like the UK, we've got like the NHS. So we've got Medicare which is what we use to you know pay for all our bills and we've got the Medicare app. But it's okay. nowhere like as good as you know the first day you stepped in Australia to like the last day. It doesn't show you everything and it's always a battle. And I think there's also a lot of ethical issues with people and the medical records. People are very, very iffy about their medical records. Why was Israel chosen as one of the places to give out Pfizer so easily as compared to any other country? Excellent question. Of course, I wasn't, you know, a policymaker in the room making the decisions. At the time, I was a lowly PhD student, like trying to write my dissertation. Um, but I think, you know, what my answer is going to be what the general public understands to be the reason why. So I'm speaking now as like a citizen, not like as an insider expert or whatever, but, you know, it just sort of makes sense. Israel is a small country. It's around the size of New Jersey. Um, Takes you like eight hours, nine hours, probably seven if you drive like an Israeli to get from top to to bottom. The population, you know, nine million, 10 million, small. Everyone who is a citizen has their electronic medical records. There is a research institute called Klalit Research Institute, 
Clalit is one of the four HMOs in Israel where Israelis can choose where to get their healthcare services from. And they, for years, have been doing all these crazy meta-analyses of like, you know, millions of people, like looking at diabetes among women who grew up in a certain area in Israel, like a sample size of millions. And also Israel knows how to roll out you know, healthcare services quickly for a variety of reasons. Israel can be very incompetent in some service rollout and very competent in other service rollout. And when it comes to emergency situations, Israel knows how to, you know, deliver for the most part. We can talk about how successful they were in the COVID context, but overall very successful compared to what another country would have probably done. Um, and so it was just this this bubble, you know, this sort of purpose perfect sort of utopia maybe for Pfizer, even when looking at what country to choose. And on top of that, there was a lot of political will and interest on the side of the then prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, to, you know, regain the trust and support of the public, which was dwindling at the time. He's obviously currently not the prime minister, but once he secured the vaccine deal with Pfizer, his approvals were at an all-time high. And, you know, Netanyahu is a very charismatic person. He's a very established politician. He had very close connections with the CEO of Pfizer. And he made sure to remind us all every single week when he did his national, like, talk to the public, where he said, you know, my best friend is the CEO of Pfizer. We talk every day. Uh, Israel will always have vaccines. Don't you worry. And so I think it was just a perfect starting point for, for Israel to get the vaccines first. And obviously Pfizer was interested in Israel independent of all these political considerations, because there's no way you can find an area to to understand your vaccine effectiveness and safety concerns live, live during a pandemic where all the infrastructure was already built there. So it's like almost like if Israel didn't take Pfizer's vaccine, like would we have had global vaccine rollout so quickly? I don't know. Hard for me to imagine that we would have rolled out the vaccine globally with the confidence that we had based on the Israeli data. And now, of course, there's amazing data coming out of the UK, the US. I saw recently an Australian study. So I think now Israel is less shiny as it used to be on that you know, front. But in a year and a half ago, I mean, it was like a saving grace. You said that you know everyone is sort of very open regarding their vaccine status. And I mean, with Australia, we, you know, we're a lot more private with that sort of stuff when it comes to our information. So how is it that they kind of manage their consent to all of that sort of stuff, all those records? In Israel specifically? Like, yeah. Yeah, in Israel, because you said that they have an app which has got pretty much everything. How is it that they've kind of done this when someone like somewhere in Australia, like that's very difficult to kind of manage? I'm not less familiar with the development of the electronic medical records system in Israel, like the the details of that, but what I can speak to is the culture in Israel and the the solidarity that really exists there when Israeli society wants it to exist. Appealing to the population's health, the safety of your family, and on top of that, an individual benefit. I assume that those factors combined with others convinces Israelis, regardless of if they're the most extreme left or the most extreme right wing politically or in the middle, everyone can sort of get behind health in Israeli society. There are anti-science, anti-vaxxers, anti-government people, just like we're seeing across all countries today. But for the most part, Israelis are very trusting of the healthcare system 
in Israel. And so I assume that that trust and the desire to like have all, it's so convenient to be able to schedule my blood test at midnight for 8 a.m. at the clinic that's 0.01 kilometers from where I'm living. It's so convenient for me. And then I get my results to my phone and I can download my vaccine certificate from that same app. So like there's a direct benefit to the individual as well as the government. So it's sort of like a win-win. And when there's win-wins there, like people are all in. When there's win-lose or half-lose, half-win, like that's when Israelis can get to be very divided. But health is something that generally unites Israelis. Yeah. I don't know if I'm stepping out of line when I say this, but do you think it has anything to do with what they've been through? Oh, of course. I mean, I don't I don't think that's a I mean, as an Israeli, you could ask me a lot of things and I won't be offended. So please feel free to ask. <laughs> it's public history. It's global history. I mean, Israel has been through a lot in its short 72 years of life. Do you think that the reason they are so trusting towards yeah. that and so yeah. pro-health and pro-safety yeah. that it is to do with what they've been through? So they're kind of like, our yeah. life is yeah. the only life we have. We're going to do whatever well, we can to protect it. 100% and protect the lives of your loved ones. And if we have the resources to invest in health and potentially save a life, we will. I mean, independent of healthcare, if, if you ever come to Israel and if you ever meet Israel Israelis abroad, I mean, maybe you've met, I know Israelis love going to Australia. Israelis very much live life to the fullest and prioritize living life because they know that life is so fragile and can be taken away from you in five minutes Mm. and so it's sort of like truly apolitical health I mean it's political the details of health how much money we should invest in health you know whether we should give free you know condoms or not but even like reproductive health topics that are normally very politicized in other high-income countries you know you can get an abortion in Israel relatively easily as a woman and and there's less shame and stigma associated with it of course dependent on the community you're living with so Yes, you completely caught on to that. It hundred percent has to do with the lived experience, lived experiences of the of the Jewish people and of the people who live there, like as a whole, and of the diversity, like not just the Jews living in Israel. There's Jews, there's Arabs, there's Muslim, there's um, there's Arab Christians, there's Arab Muslims. There's every single religion has you know representation in that country. Yeah. So everyone sort of finds common ground on certain topics and health is one of those. Yeah. <laughs> there are still people obviously that are, you know, anti-government and on a, on a large scale, it's never mm-hmm. been that prevalent until now. For us. For especially our, for especially for us. Yeah. I found that this time around the trust is broken, right? With, with our relationship with the government you know, we don't we don't trust that they're there for us anymore. We're we're sort of questioning that now. But it's people that often never did before. And so that's what I found very fascinating about this whole thing. So it's not just a matter of the ones that are always a bit, you know, anti-government. It's a lot of people that were never anti-government that are now anti-government. So in that way, I guess, you know, why do you think it is that especially countries like the U.S., and Australia, who are highly privileged countries, are now starting to question their own government when we have so much research to say that this vaccine is safe? Great question. Great points. I will answer that from my very specific tunnel hole vision that I'm living in every single day, which is from the perspective of a public health ethicist who focuses on vaccines. We can talk broadly about, you know, the, the absolute 
destruction of trust in American society, like, for example, broadly dating, you know, pre-Trump's election even. So sort of was like a, like brewing, you know, a build with up. all the, yeah. And then all of a sudden COVID strikes and it's just like, ugh, all of the pent up frustration just is coming out and being taken out on public health. That, and then some, from that you get, you know, all these conspiracy theorists who have been fed for practically, you know, eight, nine years now. Um, I'm not talking about those extremists necessarily right now when I'm moving on to my second point. I think the COVID pandemic has just been ridden with uncertainty. And so when there's so much uncertainty in a society, particularly regarding the scientific and health matters, shoving more information and facts, facts, whatever that means, into people's faces never changes their mind, right? I mean, we know that people don't get vaccinated for the flu vaccine. We know that, even though all of the evidence suggests that you should, but you don't maybe for whatever variety of reasons that you have, you know, I don't have time. I'm going to get sick anyway. It's only 20% accurate, like a 20% effective. Oh, I got vaccinated. And then I got sick last year right after, even though independently you probably had the flu in you while you were vaccinated. So that's probably the reason why you got sick right after, but people start to feel very marginalized and very isolated and mistrusting of authority when they're expressing concern for one thing and you give them something else as an answer. People who, let's say, are not conspiracy theorists, but truly just completely confused now as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic when it comes to public health, it's just so overwhelming. We've been two years at home. You know, people have been dealing with childcare, haven't have lost their jobs, are very economically stressed. It's a new vaccine. They never thought too much about vaccines anyway. And now all of a sudden it's all they think about. And one scientist is telling them that it's 94% effective and they won't transmit it. And then two months later, oh, all of a sudden Delta and you can transmit it. And the vaccine actually doesn't work as well as we thought it did. And so what does that mean? I'm completely, I've trusted you before, but now I'm confused and I don't trust you now. Public health communication is rooted in transparency and in trust. Unfortunately, governments in, in the US authority figures, I would say also in Australia, based on what my colleagues say, tells me all the time, were not transparent in their decision-making processes from the get-go. You're locking us down. Why the public health, the, the public asks, the government gives an answer that's completely unrelated to the, the answer that the public is looking for and that's satisfied with. And then that cycle just continues for two years. And then trust is just completely eroded as a lack of, from a lack of transparency. Even if governments had come out and been like, hey, listen, like, we don't know what the hell we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> like, bear with us. We're going through this with you. We're going to make mistakes, but we're doing the best we can promise you we wouldn't have so many skeptics you know we not have as many skeptics as we do now but unfortunately the government acts like at least in the U.S. the government has acted like for so long they have all the answers when in fact they don't and then all of a sudden now that we do have data and evidence so now you expect us to come trust you can public health ever be independent of the government in terms of politicizing it because I'm just very curious on how it's worked. And I keep bringing back Israel because that's kind of been your sample study for a lot mm -hmm. of this and how it's just worked there so differently as compared to everywhere else. Even for the government, it was a new thing to talk about. I think the government was panicking big time and they didn't know 
well, at least in Australia, they were panicking and they knew that this was a bad thing, unlike America, where Trump kept on saying it's not a big deal. In <laughs> Australia, it was a big deal and the government yeah. got it. And their communication was horrendous. Or what should the communication have been? What answers would have satisfied people in kind of understanding, you know, why, why we are locking the country down? And how will the vaccines help you or not help you? Like, what should the communication have been? Well, yeah. I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty, And so it's really important for me to say that. It's easy for us to be critical of now today in 2021, where at least I'm fully vaccinated and, you know, I'm able to see my family again and travel. You know, I'm very privileged in that sense. But like, I don't know if I have an answer what, of what the right thing would have been to do at in March 2020. We were all truly just going through it. But certainly what should have been communicated in some capacity is that we have no idea, like governments had, we're, we're truly scrambling like everyone else. And just disclaiming that up front, I think would have bought a little bit more time and a lot more understanding from, from the citizenry. Why is Israel so successful? So public health is, is strengthened during emergencies. We learn a lot more things about you know, innovative interventions during emergencies. Public health is not built during emergencies. Public health builds mechanisms for emergencies, but it's not a time to test public health. This shows us how good our public health systems were, where in Israel, it was amazing. In Singapore, it was great. In US, shite show. In Australia, you guys tell me, US has very little relative investment in public health compared to other countries. Although the US spends a lot more dollars on public health and healthcare, their outcomes are subpar in comparison to a place like Israel, which actually invests relatively little money on healthcare and public health overall, but sees exquisite outcomes due to the systems. I'm biased because I am a systems health systems researcher. So for me, everything is systematic. But if, if one thing has become clear during COVID, it's that our healthcare systems really determine our responses during health crises. And, you know, Israel's primary healthcare system on a, from a medical perspective and their public health interventions on from a population perspective it, are, are phenomenal. That's why I argue Israel has exquisite vaccine uptake rates without implementing mandates. You know, people, I'm talking about vaccines dependent of COVID because COVID was ultimately mandated for many people in Israel, which was like breaking precedent because Israel had like practically never mandated the vaccine before because they never had to because people got vaccinated on their own for a variety of reasons. So your public health infrastructure really impacts how you're going to succeed or not during a, a crisis, like a pandemic. Um, and unfortunately, the response to COVID has been so medicalized and we've been so focused on the vaccine that we forget that vaccines don't matter if you don't have the system to get this vaccine into arms. You said something really fascinating, which is public health is built for emergencies and not during an emergency. And I felt like here it was really being worked on during the emergency because it felt like every day we had a press briefing, which was so unnecessary because every day it was the same thing and it's like you said it was just shoving facts in people's faces mm -hmm. and of course if you hear something new every day people start going what the hell is happening why are they doing this and i don't understand anything anymore and i think on top of that 
we had a big issue with AstraZeneca as compared mm-hmm. to Pfizer. So I just wanted to ask you, a lot of people ask this question in terms of the vaccine. They keep on saying, oh, AstraZeneca is more dangerous as compared to Pfizer. Can you break down what they mean by that? So I am not up to date today. I'm speaking based on what I've read as a few months ago, and I think that more or less is still true. The AstraZeneca vaccine had a complicated rollout in comparison to Pfizer because early on, adverse side effects started popping up in very specific portions of the population, which caused governments to have to rethink their communication strategy when it comes to vaccination and AstraZeneca specifically, if a country was able to have multiple vaccines for offer. So Israel, we didn't have this problem because everything was Pfizer, right? So I'm less familiar with this development, but I do know that the AstraZeneca vaccine has specific adverse side effects in very specific population subgroups. And therefore, general GPs, I mean, on an individual level and governments on a broad level who were ultimately a little late to the party. So a lot of GPs have to take this decision making into their own hands and say, okay, like I have this specific patient. Should I recommend COVID vaccination for him broadly? Or should I say, listen, you're a part of this risk group. You should really go for solely Pfizer or actually like, you know what, you're okay for AstraZeneca. But even if someone was okay for AstraZeneca in the eyes of a GP or the government, the trust in vaccines was impacted tremendously as a result. Because people don't, like the average person doesn't care if he gets Pfizer or AstraZeneca or Johnson & Johnson or Moderna or Sputnik. Like they're just getting a vaccine. And I would argue that like those sorts of details, if you're going to engage the public with them on those, you need to be very clear from the get-go. But unfortunately, the communication strategy around COVID vaccines early on was like, okay, Pfizer is like this perfect vaccine and Moderna is like great. And every other vaccine is going to be like perfect, just like Pfizer was in quotation marks, perfect, not perfect, but okay. At the time it was a godsend and it, it is a godsend. And those kind of assumptions you just can't make. And so huge, huge hit to public health. And I don't think we are going to recover from that in the near future, even though we're living it right now. This has impacted vaccine confidence tremendously, unfortunately. The other thing I think, which is quite problematic, is that there are people that are saying that there are people right now that are living with the side effects after taking either or vaccine. You know, there's also that as well, which I don't know if you know anything about, I guess, Pfizer having any adverse reactions as well, because I've heard that a fair few people have fallen sick from it. Pfizer has proven to show to be a very safe vaccine on average, but even the safest vaccines have adverse side effects. And unfortunately, people often die as a result. I mean, not 99% of people I'm talking about. 0.01% of people. But when you take 0.0001% of millions of people, it ends up being hundreds, thousands of people who have, unfortunately, adverse side effects, or God forbid, even pass away. A lot of the time, it's, it's hard to say if the vaccine was really the trigger for the adverse side effect, which is why we need very extensive, high sample size data collection over years I want to know not only short-term side effects, now we're, let's say, 10 months since I've been fully vaccinated. 10 months is nothing in the scheme of vaccine side effect study. I want to know 10 years, 20 years out. 
And unfortunately, we can't answer that question. And so if you were to ask me, is Pfizer safe? Say, yeah, absolutely. I'm the biggest proponent for vaccines. But, you know, I can't tell you if what's going to happen in five years, 10 years, 20 years. And that's something that a lot of people in public health are afraid to say or cast as being an anti-vaccine proponent because I'm shedding doubt on the vaccine. And I and my colleague Zeb, who um, lives in Wildbird, who has been extremely influential on my views on this, and I thank him for that. I say that I am not afraid to engage with that uncertainty around the vaccine because I am being more transparent about the data we have on the vaccine. And with that transparency, I hope you will still choose to get vaccinated because I have been fully honest with you. I'm not going to say the Pfizer vaccine is completely safe and I can promise you also 50 years down the road, I can tell you that most likely you'll be fine. Most likely we have incredible data and were the benefits of this vaccine outweigh 5 billion times the potential negative effects if you are a healthy, young adult, whatever, who's eligible to get vaccinated. But it, there seemed to be this like cancellation of public health authorities engaging with this uncertainty. And if they do recognize the uncertainty, then they're anti-science or they're anti-vaccine. And I wholeheartedly disagree with that. I do think it's an art of how we communicate that there are people who specialize in communicating that. And so yeah. more investment has to be done in that. Yeah. yeah and I think mm -hmm. that that's the thing that frustrates me the most because when the vaccine came out, I am not personally, you know, anyone that doesn't take the vaccine because I know for myself, the way I look at it is, you know, I take all sorts of other stuff. I microwave my food. I drink out of plastic <laughs> bottles. I'm like, there are so many things that I do that are apparently bad for me. And so if I'm going to say no to the vaccine based on the fact that I don't know if it might kill me, that's just silly because like I take painkillers, I take antibiotics, I take all sorts of stuff. However, I still didn't want to take the vaccine at the time and it wasn't due to the fears of safety. It was more so the principle behind it. So I am now fully vaxxed. However, mm -hmm. at the time, it was the fact that it was getting mandated and it was getting forced and you started becoming the other person that was suddenly an anti-vaxxer, even though I've never really, I've never fought any form of vaccine in my life. And suddenly now that if I say no to this COVID vaccination, I'm considered an anti-vaxxer, which is putting a label on me. And I think that that's the part that frustrated me the most. I think that the way that everything has happened and the lack of transparency and the fact that we're essentially being forced and mandated to do something it was sort of like my way of going, well, why is it that we're now suddenly getting pushed into this and now we're being othered as well? Like you're another person now, you're not the same as me. I understand in a way of, you know, we're all accountable and it's all about, you know, stopping the spread and I understand that. Now it's the whole thing where you can't go somewhere unless you are vaccinated. Have you ever done studies on a, I guess, like a country or a place where basically yeah. you cannot do certain things because you're not vaccinated? Yes, of course. I think yeah. most income countries are, you know, we have plenty of vaccine mandates across a variety of different, different settings, different reasons, different age groups, you know, for a variety of different diseases. And I'm speaking now independently of COVID. I think COVID is a very unique example that should and shouldn't, depending on how we talk about it, be looped in with other um, preventable vaccine preventable diseases in their respective diseases. I mean, I mean, in the States, you know, you have to be vaccinated to go to school. If you're a healthcare worker, 
you have to be vaccinated against a variety of different diseases in order to be able to work. I'm talking about diseases like measles, mumps, rubella, some places polio, you have to have your uh, tuberculosis, tuberculin test, hepatitis B, you know, diphtheria, you know, the list goes on and on. But once again, to say, in my opinion, from an ethics perspective, that, you know, mandating the MMR vaccine is ethically equivalent to mandating the COVID-19 vaccine in 2021, I think that would be a mistake. Maybe ultimately mandating the COVID-19 vaccine is justified for many of the same reasons that mandating the MMR vaccine is justified. But there are still different levels of complexity that come with COVID, most prominently to me, uncertainty of the populations, you know, the populations who are being impacted, the uncertainty and the anxiety that they're feeling in the emergency nature of the COVID-19 pandemic that are relevant, at least for consideration, even if we don't ultimately decide against a mandate. There are things that we have to grapple with that perhaps we have to grapple with less for more established vaccines, whatever that means. Vaccines that have been around for longer and we have more confident safety data and we know that their effectiveness is very high even compared to the COVID-19 vaccine. Once again, I'm not sowing doubt in the importance of getting vaccinated against COVID-19. But we have to recognize that by mandating COVID-19 vaccines, there are going to be very different societal repercussions in comparison to other vaccine mandates, which is exactly what you were experiencing. I mean, you're a normative person who has never really grappled with this before, even though I promise you, you have gotten your mandatory vaccinations and other aspects of your life. If you will, I assume Australia mandates at least one vaccine. So that's something that we need to grapple with and be transparent about when mandating vaccines. And maybe we decide ultimately that mandating isn't appropriate because we want to you know, wait a little bit longer, engage with you a little bit longer. But it did sound like Australia came and just like mandated pretty abruptly, which is like number one mistake to do in public health. You want to engage with, you know, your population target for a long time before you even start talking about a mandate. And this is a mistake that many, many countries have made, not unique. And it's probably deriving from the fact that it's an emergency situation and governments had this vaccine and they were like encouraging people to get vaccinated voluntarily until they weren't. And that like cutoff date was very ambiguous a lot of the time. So Mm -hmm. people just felt like, okay, all of a sudden, like, now I have to get vaccinated by next Friday. Like, what? Yeah. <laughs> this is crazy. I think yeah. the problem with Australia was especially that the goalposts kept getting changed. So every time there was a lockdown, it was yeah. like, okay, well, now we're going to lift because this will happen and then we'll lift. And then it'll be like, oh, actually, you know what? No, no, no. Now we're going to lift because we want this to happen and then we're going to lift. And so I think the problem was is that bills were getting passed while all of this stir of COVID is happening. And, you know, it seems that the government has taken this time to do the things that normally Australians would have opposed if they'd have known about it. But because they're so busy with COVID, they've gone, okay, cool, now's a good time. And then there was a lot of inconsistencies with the lockdowns as well. So, you know, at the start, all the hairdressers were open, yet everything else was shut. Your liquor stores are open. You know, they're somehow considered essential. And it's just the picking and choosing of what they consider as, oh, this is what we're going to do. They were just making it up. So we all know that they were making it up as they went. The outcome of this is now that Dan Andrews, he... Premier. 
He has decided that he wants to pass a bill which he can call on a lockdown, even if there's no pandemic. So, Hmm. you know, you go from all of these things to now suddenly that, and it's kind of like, where are you ever going to draw the line? There is only so much you can just keep giving and then you can keep going, okay, well, I understand why this is happening. I understand why this is happening. You know, everyone sort of says this thing where we've never, ever had freedom to begin with. Like, if you think that we've had freedom, then you're wrong because we've always been governed, right, in some aspect. So now if you're saying to me that like, oh, you know, I want all my freedom back, you're not getting it back anyway because you never had it to begin with. But then my question is, where are we ever going to draw the line? Is it going to get to a point where we actually have nothing and then we can go, well, it doesn't matter because we never had it in the first place. I guess, you know, the concept of freedom was another one that kind of really gets questioned in this debacle you know, especially with, I guess, Israel, like, you know, you're just saying that they've gone through so much as well, but they've got this trust. Some people like Israeli who have gone through all this sort of stuff are still prepared to go, you know what, I trust the government. You know, how is it that we can establish that sort of thing here? Yes. Wow. (laughs) You're getting to really the core ethical issues that is a live topic and that I've been on multiple working groups at my university, grappling with the limits of freedom in the limits of liberty And especially in an American context, it sounds like Australia as well. There's this notion that, you know, we've prioritized, at least in the U.S., this concept of like liberty and justice for all and ultimate freedom. And in America, we're free. Well, like you said, we were never really truly free. We're free within the confines of a democracy, which I would choose any day over alternatives that have been tested out over history and that's you know a a whole conversation in itself but the COVID pandemic has really forced citizens and people to to realize like okay like we do live in we live in a country and we have a social contract and we have a government and we can't do whatever we want this becomes a bigger issue depending on where you live this is a huge issue among Americans This is perhaps less of an issue upon Europeans, for example. In terms of your point on Israelis really trusting the government, I would slightly, maybe I was communicating, I would slightly edit that. So Israelis are very distrusting of the government, very trusting of the healthcare system, which is funded by the government. So Israel is like a weird example, very complex in the sense that the political leadership of Israel, the trust has been an all-time low. I mean, Literally, Netanyahu left, like, being he left his tenure of power after like 14, 15 years straight. So there was a break. I swear, we never thought that he would be replaced, and all of a sudden he was. That shows how the public there was really ready for a change, an unprecedented change that we never thought would happen. It took the COVID nineteen pandemic to make it happen. On this note of authorities appealing to this like emergency status to essentially justify whatever they want to do regardless of if it makes sense or not or if it's right that i would point you to israel and we actually are working on a paper that unfortunately isn't out yet it should be out yet but you know so it goes we're working on a paper that really looked at the trajectory of israel's emergency response to the COVID 19 pandemic and how the government passed so much stuff in the name of an emergency because they could Because for what it's worth, this is a random fact, Israel has been in a state of emergency legally, officially, ever since it declared independence in 1948. So with that emergency status comes 
a lot of privileges to sweep a lot of stuff under the rug that I think a lot of Israelis weren't really aware of, even today, because it's always been done because Israel's always been an emergency state. So that's the status quo. Whereas somewhere like Australia, where like all of a sudden you're very in tune to the fact that the government is passing all of these things in the name of emergency and it's unclear why, like that becomes very disturbing and rightfully so. So what are the limits of liberty, freedom, emergency, justice, democracy? I mean, this is all up for grabs. Uh, The COVID pandemic has shifted everything. I hope that we move toward a world that, or I hope that we move toward in America and in Israel, speaking on the countries that I have experienced working in, who prioritize solidarity, prioritize the beauty and the strength of democracy, who foster a public, who recognize that there's limits on their liberty and on their freedom because of what we gain as a society due to those limits. And that we don't want ultimate freedom. We really don't. We don't, I don't think I even know what that looks like, but I know I want it. <laughs> I'd prefer to be within the confines of a democracy, of a functioning government. But unfortunately, we haven't had time to communicate that because we've been in such a response mode because we've been in an emergency. And so I do give governments like a pass like in some senses because not complete pass, but like we have to be empathetic to these governing bodies who are ridden with like institutional baggage and can't pass things quickly. And they're not built to respond, you know, within five minutes. But with that in mind, our politicians and our government leaders, so the individuals working within those systems need to do better and we need to hold them accountable. And the concept of accountability is really what I think a lot of what we're talking about is getting at like, okay, we made a mistake. Who can we turn to? Okay, the mistake was made again. Okay, now what? And then the, uh, it just falls apart without accountability and transparency and trust. So, Yeah, and accountability is, is a big one as well. Like, and, and that's the thing, like, you know, the one, the one reason I decided, okay, fine, is because we are accountable for each other as well. And like you said, we have a social contract so that whatever we do does affect another person. Going back to the turning point especially in Australia, was actually the communication around which vaccine was better. And I remember between AstraZeneca and Pfizer, I had never heard about people taking that much interest in what vaccine was good for them and what wasn't. And it was the first time that we actually had a choice to make. And I don't, I mean, I I was born and brought up in India, so we just get Mm -hmm. what we want. I mean, we just... <laughs> you wish no. you did. <laughs> we, well, we don't get what we want. We just basically get whatever we're given. And we are told that's the only one, so take it. Otherwise, you're going to lose out. So it yeah. became, all right, just... And India kind of created its own one, and it's got an amazing, amazing organization that creates vaccines in India. And they kind of came oh, yeah. out... Yeah, in Pune. And they yeah. created their own one, and they started giving it to people which is I think India didn't have this problem because they didn't even know about Pfizer. They didn't care because there was one being created there and they were like, okay, yeah, we trust, you know, this organization that make vaccines. And it, they also suffered greatly from it. it. It was bound to happen, right? Like it was bound to hit India at some point and given the sheer volume of people, I still think India didn't suffer greatly because what we are looking at in just in terms of numbers, it was still only 1%. Maybe less than that, just because of the sheer numbers of India. But the same thing has happened in Australia, and it's a lot of people. 
a lot of people have died here. But I think the turning point, as you said, was the choice between vaccines that we essentially didn't have the tools to understand what a vaccine even does. So I kind of wanted to go back to, for, for a person who doesn't know how vaccines work, I, I would love for you to kind of break it down in simple words for someone to understand, because we weren't even told how vaccines work. And that, that is a big argument that's given, then why this? And how, how is COVID so different to flu from, from all the studies that you've done? So I'd love some background on that. To your point about how like Indians were so excited when India started pr- producing their own vaccine and like, just give it to me. Oh yeah, like we are lucky in high income countries that we have the choice, the privilege of choice when it comes to COVID-19 vaccines. Most people in the world still haven't even had access to their first shot. And will probably stay that way for the years to come. So this issue of like buying vaccines, choosing vaccines, vaccine shopping is, is an awful, awful privilege, you know, conundrum. Um, but it is a relevant and important conundrum to deal with because it matters and it affects, affects vaccine confidence. It's your question on how a vaccine works. So a vaccine works differently depending on the kind of vaccine. We have mRNA vaccines and we have more traditional vaccines like the AstraZeneca vaccine, like Johnson & Johnson, vector vaccines. I don't want to get into the specific details because I'm not going to say it in a way that I think is concise and correct for this podcast, because for what it's worth, it, it doesn't really matter, right? You can communicate how a vaccine works, whether or not it's mRNA or a vector vaccine, a more traditional type of vaccine. You can communicate it in a way that doesn't go to the, that level of detail, which ultimately might confuse people when you're communicating on a mass scale, you can say a vaccine works by triggering your antibodies that builds your immune system that ultimately will protect you from this disease. And then obviously you can prepare other additional materials that explain what exactly is mRNA, what exactly is a vector vaccine, if necessary. The problem is throwing a lot of information at someone who is already confused is just going to confuse them even more. So I loved your answer. You were like, I know how a vaccine works. Like it protects me and not worry about it. Like it makes my immune system work. I'm good. So clearly if populations are still struggling and and concerned about how a vaccine works, at least within high income countries, because I am not going to start critiquing low and middle income countries. They have much bigger problems right now than COVID even. Like they're dealing with cholera re-emerging dengue, malaria, like these issues that the yeah, people still die of malaria. It's it's which is crazy. Tuberculosis, the number one killer in the entire world that you need to have a very crafted communication strategy when it comes to public health that doesn't give too much more information than necessary, that has the information ready to be delivered when prompted and when asked. So you roll out with a very basic communication com- campaign around vaccines. You see that people are still confused, you refer them to additional materials. And maybe it was relevant to provide those additional materials up front. But I think that it was just like a lot of information. mRNA, that's like really scary. DNA, that's really scary. We haven't even explained those concepts. What's mRNA? What's DNA? Okay, so now we're getting into like a biology 101 course that like, I took bio 101 and it was really hard, (laughs) barely passed. Like that was very difficult. Yeah, I took bio um, 101 as well, and it was horrendous. I hated it. Yeah. I know. I mean, I'm pretty sure all those like basic science classes are the reasons why I didn't go to med school because I was like, 
the same for me. I'm not going to last. So obviously it's not going to work when we're trying to communicate that at a public level during an emergency situation. With that in mind, there are incredible resources out there. Like for example, Hopkins University I'm at has incredible educational resources that are so basic and break it down step by step and are truly amazing in public and free. But like, who's going to think to go to Johns Hopkins website? You know what I mean? Unless referred. Yeah, and and yeah. you said that flu vaccines were never mandated, and this one is. So, what's the difference between the two that you found from studies? So, I think this is a very live question, and I have my personal views on this, but I'm going to be very careful in like saying them because it's subject to change even tomorrow. And I don't want to give an impression that I don't want to give that I don't want to ultimately come off, but especially in the U.S., and it sounds like also in Australia, this appeal to the, the flu vaccine precedent was always appealed to because that we mandate the flu vaccine in certain settings for healthcare workers. So therefore, like the mandate for healthcare workers for the COVID-19 vaccine is justified. Do I think COVID and the flu are the same? No. Are they both respiratory viruses? Yes. Do they both have the potential to be pandemic? Of course. One of them is pandemic right is a pandemic disease right now uh, another one was pandemic disease 10 years ago i'm not going to get into all the epidemiological differences because you know what we don't really know we will learn so much about covid in the years to come we think we know so much about covid today but we have so much more to learn we understand flu pretty well we have a lot more to learn about flu obviously because we haven't de- developed a universal flu vaccine that would you know protect against all variants and strains of the flu, which ultimately is the reason why the flu vaccine is relatively ineffective because you have to, there's a, it's a quadrivalent vaccine, depending on the, what access to what vaccine you have in the U S I have access to the quadrivalent. Vaccine. Yeah. We use the flu quad here. So we get the full one. Yeah. Yeah. Which is great. I mean, but still, it's like you have protection from four, but there could be like 20 out there and the four that are in the vaccine, like might not be the the one circulating that year. So obviously the vaccine works less. For what it's worth, they're both respiratory diseases that generally target people who are immunocompromised or generally are at heightened risk to those who are elderly, overweight, severely young, or have adverse health effects or immunocompromised populations to begin with. Generally true for both populations, although obviously young, healthy people die of the flu much more than we realize. Awful, awful, awful tragedy. Young, healthy people die of COVID. Is it at the same level of flu or more? TBD, I would say. Maybe there's some emerging data. What has made these diseases so different is the polarization surrounding the two. The flu is not really a politically charged disease. You know, we say we have the flu even when we have a common cold. Like, we don't know if we actually have the flu. During my dissertation, I actually tested healthcare workers to see if they had the flu when they said they had the flu. Like, let's say one out of 20 actually had the flu. The rest of them actually had RSV, but they said that they had the flu because it's a colloquialism that we use. I'm not going to like casually say I'm feeling sick and think I have COVID. Like, it's a joke. It's a bad joke. I do but... it all the time. <laughs> I make that. I literally made that joke at the start, at the start of me. the podcast. So. so I know how you came back and, and that was good. That's very well done. <laughs> But like in society, like if I say I have the I have COVID and I come to work, like my employer is going to fire me. You know what I mean? Like why are you coming to work with COVID? Where if I were to come to work 
with the flu would be like, oh, that was probably irresponsible, but okay. You know, sometimes you got to go to work while you're sick because your kid doesn't have childcare. So like, all right, Mm -hmm. stay away from me. Right. Uh, But like, you're going to quarantine for two weeks if you have COVID. The two diseases when it comes to policymaking processes are just so charged. COVID is so charged politically that to mandate a COVID-19 vaccine, regardless of its epidemiology or regardless of the science, whatever that means, is going to be like accepted so differently in society versus if we talk about the flu vaccine mandate. Why is there a huge push to mandate the COVID-19 vaccines right now? Because we're in a COVID-19 pandemic and people want the COVID-19 pandemic to end and rightfully so. And we've seen that people aren't getting vaccinated maybe as much as we like in certain communities. So governments and authorities start considering mandates. For me, the more interesting question is not whether or not a mandate works. I can engage with people all day on that question and I could put on a health systems researcher policy hat and work out whether or not a mandate will work or not with the given population. It's less interesting to me though, because guess what? 99% of time mandates work. Actually, mandates always work. It's in their definition. You are mandating it. You remove anyone who is not complying. Mm -hmm. Compulsory vaccination. The more interesting question, in my opinion, is are mandates ethical? Are the vaccine policy that we're implementing, is it ethical? Are we treating people with respect? We can decide to mandate a vaccine, even if we don't want to mandate it. I mean, in certain settings, I am not the biggest proponent of COVID-19 vaccine mandates. I think that there are higher ethical justifications for COVID-19 vaccine mandates in certain populations than in others. But there is nuance, in my opinion, toward whether or not we should implement a COVID-19 vaccine mandate. Let's say we decide to implement one anyway. You disagree with me. You say, hey, Rachel, like we need to mandate this. You don't call me to have me tell you whether or not it's going to work. You would call me to ask, okay, Rachel, we're mandating this vaccine. How can we make this more ethical for the population who is going to be experiencing it? Uh, I would tell you, well, you're mandating it for healthcare workers. Have you given them paid time off? Are you forcing them to get vaccinated at a separate location? Are you forcing them to get vaccinated outside the hours of their workday? They have children. Do you have an opportunity for them to get free childcare so that they can get vaccinated more comfortably? Are you burdening them more with the vaccine mandate execution than you are otherwise? So like what I'm trying to say is the implementation of a mandate can be more or less ethical. You know, I can walk away feeling like my employer cared about me, even though they mandated the vaccine for me from like as a result of a mandate or can walk away thinking my employer hates me and treats me like a piece of dirt and that I am just part of its like capitalist scheme to make money because they force vaccination on me without engaging with me once, right? Same result, two different paths. Same, Mm -hmm. you end up with 99% vaccine uptake either way. So you might as well make people feel respected or as as Mm -hmm. respected as possible. And you accept that like some people are gonna quit. You don't demonize them if they quit. Now, if large amounts are quitting, so maybe we should understand why 30% of your healthcare workers are quitting as a result of a mandate. Was it a result of your lack of investment in prepping them for the mandate and your lack of institutional support and giving them paid time off, et cetera, to get their mandate? Or was it a result of like their personal views 
that nothing you could do was going to change their mind anyway. And then that's a, that's a separate topic, right? That sucks. Right. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of things institutions can do to make a mandate more ethical, independent of the question of whether or not mandates work, which is yes, every time pretty much. So yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. Which also shows how much back and forth communication is needed. Part of what frustrated me with Australia is that we were waiting for ages when we could have done it ages ago. And yeah. we wasted all of that time being in lockdown without the vaccines being talked about. We were always told, yeah, yeah, they're happening, they're coming. We got parented a lot by Dan. <laughs> I feel like the communications were very like, nah, guys, you're going to have to do this. Like, you're bad children. Like, oh, you guys went to the park. You know, I'm very disappointed. It was, I think it was a very poor way of like we had massive fines and we still have massive fines and especially melbourne Mm. more than any other place which is what's really interesting about australia is it's the state of victoria which has really demonized its people but now suddenly they're saying children need to be mandated as well and Mm. I, i know you're doing a lot of research on that as well like you know what ethics should people be looking at when getting their children vaccinated yeah so actually with Zeb, who I keep mentioning, a local uh, Melbourne physician epidemiologist, we wrote a piece together with another colleague in the Netherlands thinking about the ethical implications of vaccinating children against COVID. We started thinking about this in the spring, so much before vaccination was actually rolled out to children. I do want to place a huge disclaimer that our, our arguments are on a global level. So we challenge the global ethics of vaccinating children essentially when we argue that the benefit to healthy children, healthy children, not unhealthy, overweight children with asthma. But I'm just saying the ethical compass for for whether or not a healthy child or a less healthy child getting vaccinated is different against COVID. That was one set of arguments we made. The second set of arguments goes to our concerns about the lack of safety data, specifically within children children are not small adults, okay? You can't apply adult safety data to Mm -hmm. children. It sounds like it's looking promising, the safety data that's existing. Clearly the FDA has approved it and is starting to vaccinate kids so they feel comfortable with the amount of safety data. Myself and my co-authors, we feel less comfortable with at least the lack of transparency on the amount of safety data out there. We like to see more, that's all we're saying. We're not saying that the vaccine is unsafe and whatever, but. We just like to see more. Once again, many people would challenge this claim and be like, when is going to be enough for you, Rachel? When is going to be enough for you, Zeb? There's enough for us right now. That's fine. There's enough for you. There's not enough for my colleagues and I, and we explain why. And thirdly, we appeal to the to the issues, the global justice issues around the fact that children in rich countries are being vaccinated, fully vaccinated, before adults in lower middle income countries and that to me is very ethically problematic and has a lot of global justice implications. If I if I was the master of all vaccine prioritization and had a wand, I would obviously prioritize every single adult to be vaccinated in the world before beginning to vaccinate children in rich countries. With that in mind, if you are a parent in a country that is offering vaccination to your child, you know, you make that risk assessment on your own. 
based on the resources available to you and the data available to you. I'm not a parent. I don't have a child. I don't know what it's like to have a child um, during the COVID-19 pandemic. I can only imagine the amount of relief that a vaccine provides to parents during this time, knowing the social benefits that could result from their child getting vaccinated, knowing that they're less of perhaps a transmitter and a carrier, knowing that they can go to school consistently. So many kids have just missed school for the last two years. I mean, the education disparities are are incredible. And I would argue that I would vaccinate my child despite all of my concerns in order to allow them to have consistent social interaction and education in order to avoid the stigma that might come with not being vaccinated, being the only unvaccinated child in your class. I mean, can you imagine that kids are getting bullied nowadays for not being vaccinated or not? So all of these social factors, in my opinion, are even more relevant to the decision of individual parents choosing to vaccinate their child, more so even than my global concern, my population level concern about the amount of safety data and the inequities and and the fact that ultimately COVID is less of a pediatric emergency than other diseases, right? Like most healthy children will come out of COVID on the other side, relatively unscathed. Of course, there are children hospitalized. Of course, children are dying. But every parent needs to do that risk-benefit analysis for themselves. And when it comes to kids, this is why I'm particularly concerned about mandating for children, because all of the points I just and concerns I just brought up are magnified times 12 when we think about mandating for children. We have all the concerns for 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 adults, and plus all of these unique concerns that come with the fact that, you know, their kids, right? It has incredible strength to potentially harm or benefit them extremely. So yeah, this is like a very developing topic and my views on it are changing constantly. I I think our arguments in that paper, which is published in Welcome Open Research, focus on the global population ethical implications and less on the clinical individual implications. Every parent should consider vaccination if they can for their child Consider the social benefit or lack thereof that their child might benefit from the vaccine in addition to the epidemiological benefit or lack thereof that their child might receive. Of course, consult with a physician and et cetera. So very weary to come out, you know, anti-child vax or vice versa or pro-child vax. It's very dependent on your child as well, right? Really depends. They're not small adults. How long do you think this pandemic is going to last? Oh, no. I think that's like a little of a question, a little bit above my pay grade. But um, Well, do you want to get rich or not? <laughs> I do. The pandemic will be over officially, politically, whatever the countries handling the pandemic decide that the pandemic is over. Yeah, but I, uh, I yeah. still don't think it's it's got to do with the vaccine, because is that another concern that even now with the vaccines, can we go into lockdowns again? Is that a possibility? And I think there is. Anything is possible. I mean, yeah. we're at the whims of, our, of the government. Like, exactly. I think, I think that hopefully now governments will be held a little bit more accountable, given that people have a taste in certain countries like the US and Australia, have a taste of post-vaccine life. I mean, it won't be so easy to lock everyone up again, because at least in the US, maybe in Australia, I don't know. You, your folks are more obedient. I don't know. The problem is once you take the lid off of like once you start giving people back their freedoms, people aren't locked up so easily once again. 
And so governments have decided that it's time to start loosening restrictions, rightfully so. And so it's not going to be like 2020 where they just like threw us back in lockdown and we all obeyed and sat in fear and like waited for the press conference the next day. People are ready to go back to living their life. They're more open to start exploring an exit strategy to COVID, which isn't zero COVID, um, which isn't elimination, at least in the U.S., the media not as often as it should, but does often speak about how COVID is going to ultimately become most likely endemic. We need to start learning to live with COVID. So the to your question of when does the pandemic end, the pandemic ends once our governments and authorities start deciding to shift their mode of operation from crisis response mode to prevention control mode. So instead of basing everything off of an arbitrary number of cases or an arbitrary number of vaccination saying, okay, like we are prioritizing kids being in school. So how do we build policies to support that instead of just shutting schools down arbitrarily every time a case pops up? Does that case really put the school at risk? How high is the community vaccination rate? The number one determinant to combating COVID is, and I believe will remain, high levels of adult vaccine uptake. We can decide to vaccinate kids or not. We can mandate, like governments will do what they want when it comes to kids. But we have seen that societies are able to return to normal life without vaccinating children with solely high rates of adult vaccination. And I do think that this will largely remain true, plus or minus whatever variant or data comes out. And so we can start learning to live with COVID or we can decide to keep living in fear of COVID. And that's a privilege, right? Like to make that distinction. But a lot of these higher income countries, high income countries are at that point. And to your point, like they need to decide when they're going to stop pulling on this emergency justification to justify all means. And I don't know when countries are going to do that. I think the U.S. is closer, maybe than Australia. Israel's in a really good place right now. There's barely any COVID there, but they haven't opened up international travel. Mm -hmm. Australia, I understand that. As of recently, a tourist come in, but that's yeah. a huge test, right? Yeah. It's a huge yeah. test and as to how they're going to quarantine as well. Yeah. I mean, is quarantining necessary? Are you going to accept mm -hmm. the vaccination certificates of other countries? I mean, theoretically, if someone is vaccinated, why are they quarantining? Or you're doing that as an extra protection measure. It's a whole slew of policy questions that people hopefully are thinking about. I don't know. I don't know them, but... Hopefully they are. And we need to really focus on execution and carrying out the policy decisions that are made rooted in scientific evidence and facts. You know, COVID is politicized now. And so I really have no way how to predict the future. All I can do is hope that evidence will inform decision making, which didn't happen for so, so much of the pandemic. And more transparency. Yeah, more transparency. The fundamentals of public health people, evidence based decision-making, transparency, trust, honesty, promoting individual autonomy while still doing what's best for the population, altruism, doing what's best for the other, even if it's less politically satisfying for you as the government. Basics, back to basics. Public health is going through a huge revolution right now. I think we're still in the middle of it. I think now all of a sudden everyone is interested in public health. I hope that this interest is leveraged into increased resources and research mm -hmm. and positive change, but it equally could go in the other direction. Yeah. Who knows? 
yeah and, and people stop government stops spending money on fucking militaries and actually think <laughs> about you know how we can invest it smartly into well if there's another pandemic we are ready for it oh yeah if there's another pandemic i mean i hate to break it to everyone but there, there might be i mean oh. people there's some people who say there's for sure going to be yeah and so all we can say is that like all we can hope is that our experience of the last two and a half years isn't for or two years isn't for nothing right like we just hope that we learn from from this time which is not a given that we will learn based on history humans don't often learn from <laughs> pandemics unfortunately so we have to invest in the infrastructure in our governments and create more of a global infrastructure that allow us to combat infectious disease pandemics more effectively um, that's all we can do right like we can't predict it but we can just try and be as prepared as we can mm -hmm. um, that's like a yeah. fart as well we never know when when it's going to come oh out but gosh. we can just prepare Public health works when nothing happens. That's not my quote. That's someone else's quote. When nothing happens, public health is working. When it's an incomplete <laughs> S show, that means that like public health infrastructure needs either higher investment or are we working or something like that. That's the most balanced view we've got so far. That's great to hear. I mean, I strive to be a little balanced, like more balanced. Sometimes it's hard because mainstream discussion like once again COVID is so politicized and so anyone who tells you that public health is apolitical don't trust them public health always has and always will be political so we need to learn to work within the confines of that and that's fine that's an art everything in COVID has just been so like either you're with us or against us and that's not going to be how we get out of this pandemic we need to figure out a way to find common ground and my approach to that is just trying to take a very balanced view, try and base my views based on the available evidence and not be swayed by what is most acceptable based on my political circle. Obviously, like I am a left-leaning person, I have democratic views, and a lot of my democratic colleagues in public health are essentially canceling anyone who raises any doubt about the vaccine at all. It comes from a good place because they want to increase vaccine uptake, but that's not how you increase vaccine uptake. You have compassion, you engage with people. There's obviously a limit to how much you can engage with neo-Nazis, like conspiracy neo-Nazi theorists. Like I'm not talking about changing their minds. I'm talking about changing your mind. Like you spoke earlier, like you were just a normal person who had some concerns. So why should I put you up against a wall and make you feel like shiz and then push you farther away from me? Like, no, I want to work on bringing you closer to the decision to vaccinate. And that doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen with facts. It happens with trust, with transparency, and with mutual understanding. And unfortunately, there is no quick fix to that. And so I'm in it for the long haul. And I hope other people in public health are too. I'm just really yeah. passionate about this. So. That was, that was yeah, I was like, that was beautiful. That was, was a really, like, <laughs> yeah. I, don't think... I was like, oh my God. Where oh my are the tissues? She's crying. <laughs> no don't cry <laughs> but. usually when i'm talking to i guess well i've spoken to sahil about this and i've gotten very angry at him we've had we've had we've actual... had very heated debates about this because i've got a very balanced view so for then someone to push me it pushes me all the way to the other side rather than sticking to my balanced view to begin with and so that's what i've been trying to say it's like when you constantly go at somebody, even though they're not saying that they're against or they're an anti-vaxxer or whatever, it suddenly makes them feel defensive. And once they put their defenses up, you've lost that person. But then I got her a laptop, so it's okay now. Yeah. 
you can buy affection apparently. No, it's easy. It's super easy. Money can buy everything. You know, it, there's a lot of nuance in COVID. So that's why I don't think COVID is representative of everything in the vaccine mandate or vaccine policy space at all. No, no, no. We can al- apply a lot of what we know to COVID, but not necessarily always vice versa. And so we're constantly learning. Like it's just super dynamic and we need to be patient and we're going to make mistakes along the way. And that's okay. We just have to be transparent about them. Word of the day, transparency, I guess. Yeah. Well, thank you so, so much for coming on, Rachel. It's been a pleasure talking to you. It was an absolute pleasure for educating us. All right. (laughs) Bye-bye. Thank you. Have a good day.